going here. Uh, if you want to, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans 2. That's where we'll be starting. How can you get that right there? Thank you. Awesome. Um, I don't know uh, the last time you heard something that kind of shocked you. Uh, the last time someone told you something that was so kind of paradigm shifting uh, that, it, that it just blew your mind, uh, something that really kind of, I don't know, shook a little bit of your worldview. Uh, my kids just had one of those moments on Sunday. Uh, actually, that's one of the cool things about having kids is you get to experience a lot of those moments. There's a lot of moments that just blow your mind. Uh, one of my major moments that blew my mind is I remember being... Uh, like six years old or something, and watching my dad fold socks and, you know, do that little thing where you roll them inside out and they become a ball. And I thought my dad was magic. Uh, I could have sworn like he was a wizard of some kind, that he turned two pairs of socks into one ball, uh, which is crazy. Uh, my kids had a moment on Sunday where they got totally had their minds blown when they found out that Jesus was not white. All right? Uh, when, uh, when they were, we were talking about it, they were asking some questions uh, about, you know, we're the, the Samson story. And, and they've been learning these things about Jackie Robinson and, um, and Harriet Tubman. And so they've been learning about, like, racism and stuff like that back, uh, you know, back in the day. And so they're asking, like, did, was, did that stuff exist back then? Were people, like, mean to, like, brown-skinned people back then? They don't have race. They don't call white black. They just say kind of the name of the skin or whatever. And I said, actually, um, there weren't actually in those stories, in Samson's stories, there weren't, like, light-skinned people and brown-skinned people. It was like something kind of in between, actually. And they're like, what? And I was like, yeah, actually, Jesus was like that. Do you know that? And they were just like, what? I was like, yeah, Jesus wasn't white. And, and it's not that, like, people have been telling them that. It's just that that's been kind of their perspective for a long time, and that's been in a lot of pictures. And so it was really fun to kind of explain, no, it's not like that. And so I was actually pulling up, like, kind of pictures of, like, Middle Eastern men and saying, this is, this is more what he looks like. And they were just like, I mean, you could tell. It was like world shaking. And they were kind of mad, but they weren't mad that Jesus isn't white. They're just mad that they can't be Middle Eastern now. They're just mad. <laughs> they're mad that they're white now. And so they're just like, man, literally, my, my son was like, dang it. I wish I was. He just keeps, again, they don't have like phrases like Middle Eastern or Jewish or whatever. He just keeps saying, I wish I was tan like Jesus. That's what he, uh, that's kind of his thing. And so it was fun to kind of see that, that, that thing happen with them. Sometimes we have our mind blown in really cool ways. Sometimes we have it in kind of surprising ways. Sometimes we have it, our mind blown in ways that anger us or that, that goes so against what we believe that it frustrates us to the core. Um, tonight we're going to look at Paul saying some things that really would have been mind-blowing and shocking. Uh, for the last couple weeks, uh, Paul has really been taking it to human beings in general. Uh, he talked about at the end of Romans 1 that Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, are sinful through and through. That, that everything about them, they, they, they live their life towards themselves and replacing God with other things, idols and all, all kinds of other desires. And so they're sinful. And then last week, Paul shifted and said, it's not just them though. It's like people who consider themselves good and moral. Like they fall short as well. And specifically, he seems to have his eye on the Jewish people, like Jewish listeners who might be kind of reading this and, and stuff. So he talks about them. This week... Uh, in our text, he, he makes his, his kind of 
argument directly towards the Jewish people. He, he says the, them by name and, and speaks a lot to their issues. In fact, he's going to talk about what were probably the two biggest identity markers for the Jewish people in his day. The two biggest, if you will, like shields or defenses of theirs against God's judgment and God's wrath. So they could look and they could go, yeah, Gentiles are definitely going to be judged. They're awful people. Look at them. We all know they're going to get judged. But we don't get judged because we don't have to worry about facing God's wrath on the last day because of, and they would list off these two things. And Paul is going to go directly after those things and show what those things really mean in the end. The first big thing that we'll see, but first you should know this actually. As he does this though, this opens up kind of a whole new can of worms that needs to be kind of worked through and processed. Um, so it, it gets a little bit complicated, but I think kind of the, the movement of his argument is really interesting tonight. Uh, so he starts uh, with the first major identity marker, the first major defense, and that is the law. In Romans 2, verse 17, here's what he says. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Okay, so what Paul has just done there is he's gone down and he's listed through a series of Jewish boasts. But all of them are centered around this idea of we have the law. We know what it is God wants, what he's calling us to. Um, this was a very huge deal for the Jewish people. We tend to think, when we think about like the Old Testament law, we tend to think of it as kind of like this like ball and chain type thing, this restriction, this hindrance that God laid this heavy burden on the people there. They didn't think of it that way. For them, it was an amazing thing that of all the people on the earth, God chose to reveal His will and His desires to us. Like it could have been anybody. And God, the transcendent, broke through into the human world and shared this stuff with us. Here's what Psalm 147, verses 19 through 20 says. It says, He, that's God, He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt this way with any other nation. They do not know His rules. Um, and so this is kind of the way they thought about it. Nobody else got the honor of being able to hear this stuff. Nobody else knows what God wants and has this covenant connection with Him through the law. We're not like everyone else. We're different. But then Paul will take this and he'll ask them a series of cutting questions. Look at verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So in essence, his question is, do you practice what you preach? The things that you're lifting up, the things that you say you hold to, do you actually follow those? And he'll use these three different examples, each of them getting a little bit more extreme. Okay, the first, you who say you shouldn't steal, do you steal? Uh, you who say you shouldn't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And then the last one is kind of interesting. You who hate idols, who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Um, and 
You'd think the answer to that question would be like, no, nobody robs temples, Paul. That's a weird question to ask. Uh, but, but actually, this practice back in, in the first century and, and, and earlier and all that stuff was not all that uncommon because temples were full of very valuable objects. Uh, idols covered in gold and, and all these sacred objects with, uh, that were bejeweled. And a lot of times, uh, temples kind of operated like the bank. A lot of the money was stored there. And so people might go in there and, and rob those idols and, and, and take from those things. Um, Deuteronomy 7.25, though, speaks against this, says that not only should the people of God um, hate idols and, and should not worship them, he says, you should not even like use an idol, you should not even take an idol and melt it down to use the gold for another practice. He says, I don't want you to have anything to do with them. And so any Jewish person who might do that, who might take from a, a pagan temple and use that idol for something, that practice was considered forbidden. Now, Paul's not saying that everybody did that. He's not saying that every Jewish person stole or committed adultery, no. But he is saying that some of them did. And, and he's taking aim at the Jewish people as a whole and saying the Jewish people as a whole cling to the law, but the truth is they do not practice it as they want to say that they do. And he's using some of the most extreme examples to kind of make his point, adultery and theft and, and robbing temples and those kinds of things. Now, the next verse is the key idea that Paul is stressing. Verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He says your self-confidence is, is all wrapped up in this idea that we know what God wants. He spoke to us. He gave the scriptures to us. But you don't do it, Paul says. You don't obey it perfectly. You don't keep it like you should. And then he quotes from the prophets, probably Isaiah 52 and Ezekiel 36, which both talk about how when God's people sinned and the consequences of that sin was they ended up getting captured and sent into exile, uh, the prophets would say that God's name is profaned or blasphemed because of you. Because all the countries around, all the nations around, they look at you and they go, there's nothing special about those people. And there's nothing special about their God. He couldn't keep them from being hauled off into Babylon in exile. Paul says the same thing is happening when the Jewish people want to point fingers at Gentiles, but they're often practicing some of the same things. He says the Gentiles around you look at you and go, there's nothing special about you, and there's nothing special about your God. God's name is blasphemed and uh, profaned because of you. Now, he'll shift his focus to this second big identity marker, and it kind of plays off of that law thing. Verse 25. For circumcision, is, uh, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, this is the second big identity marker for them. Circumcision was a really important deal dating all the way back 2,000 years earlier to Abraham. Those of you guys who were here last year, we, we, we walked through this in Genesis 17 where God gives this covenant to Abraham and says, this is the sign for everyone that belongs to me, that is a part of my people, that is they will be circumcised. And that marks you, that sets you apart as different than everybody else. Um, if you 
If you want to learn more about, for those of you guys who are really itching to learn more about circumcision, whatever weirdo people there are in here, um, we actually, we did a, uh, we did a, a talk on that on Genesis 17 and tracing that idea through the scriptures, how this, what this means to the Jews. It's called, I think we called it the weirdest religious ritual is what it's called. So if you go on our little podcast thing, you can find that if you want to learn more about it. But it was a really big thing that set them apart from everyone else. And God gave them this practice and they really made a, a, uh, they found a lot of self-confidence in this. This is how we know we're okay. In fact, there's some statements that were passed down through the ages around this very time of different rabbis who would say, here's one of the phrases that we found kind of written down. It says, circumcised men do not descend into hell. In other words, the rabbis would teach that's an impossibility for Jewish men and their families to wind up in hell. As long as they are practicing the rite of circumcision, as long as they are marked as belonging to God, then they've got nothing to worry about. Um, Paul says, actually, though, that's not true. And he's going to throw this kind of formula at them, which basically says uh, circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision. Uh, He says it only has value if there's actual, like, if you're obeying the law, if you're practicing those things uh, as as you go. Um, Now, this is a big statement that Paul's making, but it's not brand new. Uh, All the way back in the day of Moses, in Deuteronomy 10.16, so this would be like the year 1446, 1444 B.C., Moses is talking to the people of Israel, and he actually uses this term, he pleads with them, he tells them uh, to circumcise their hearts, which again, as Americans, this just sounds so weird to talk like this, I recognize it. Uh, It wasn't weird for them to talk like this, because this is such a critical part of their identity. But what he meant by that was, if circumcision is the way that you mark yourself as being belonging to God, set apart for Him, when he says circumcise your hearts, he's saying, I want not just your body to belong to Him, I want you the whole of who you are, your heart, what drives you. I want every part of you to belong to God. And so this, this idea would be talked about through the scriptures that, that God wants a heart like this and not just the physical marker. So what Paul's saying is big. It's not completely brand new if you were a Jewish person who is really studying the scriptures. But what Paul says next is completely brand new. Verse 26. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul says here first, circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision. You might as well be a Gentile. You might as well not belong to God's covenant people. But then what he just said in the verses we read is actually even crazier. He says, uncircumcision plus obedience equals circumcision. That to have those things together actually makes you like a Jewish person, makes you as though you belong to God. He goes, um, 
uh, so far to say this, that true Jewish people, that is the members of God's covenant people, don't even have to be Jewish. You don't have to be Jewish to be Jewish, is what Paul says. Um, That's not what it really is. In fact, he goes on to say, know this, those of you who call yourself Jews, those of you who mark yourself by your closeness to God, if you do not keep it, there will be Gentiles who stand up on the last day and judge you and condemn you. And that statement right there would have been unthinkable. That, that very idea would be something that would be so mind-blowing and so infuriating that these pagan people would, would stand up alongside of the God of Israel and condemn people who belong to Israel on that day. It would have been um, completely uh, mind-blowing to them, completely unthinkable. Now, don't read this here as saying obedience. Paul's not saying obedience gets you into heaven. Obedience makes you belong to God. No. What does he say there towards the end in verse 29? He says, what I'm talking about is something that the Holy Spirit does inside of you. This obedience is a result of the Spirit working in you. He's dropping hints here that he's going to unpack later in Romans 6 and in Romans 8. He'll, he'll explain more of this, but he's saying it's, it's not due to the letter. It's not due to law-keeping. It's due to something that is happening inside of you by the Spirit. Now, this leads to a really huge question. If it's true that a Gentile, as long as they're keeping the law, then they get to be like Jewish people, and if Jewish people, if, that, if, if, if they're not fully obeying, they're not like, uh, they're not like uh, Jewish people, they're uncircumcised, the big question becomes this. What then is the point of being Jewish? Because all we've been told all our lives as we read through the Scriptures, as our parents told us, is that we were God's chosen people. That there's something unique about us. That we are His treasured possession. That we are His royal priesthood. All these phrases that God uses to describe them. And now, Paul, you're coming in and saying none of that means anything. And this becomes a huge question for Paul to have to work through and and deal with. We told you you earlier, Romans 1.17 is a key verse for all of the book of Romans, in which he says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that's Romans 1.16, but then he says, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And, And we told you the righteousness of God means two things Paul's talking about. First of all, it's a legal thing. How is God just? How does he make sure that the that sinful people are punished, but that people can also be forgiven, all right? And then the second question is, how is God faithful to his covenant to Israel? Because in light of the stuff he just says, it sounds like like God has gone back on every promise that he made to them. And this makes no sense to them. And so Paul will pose the question in chapter 3, verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Now, we talked about this a week or two ago, that Paul uses this type of teaching that was known as a diatribe, in which he goes back and forth between him and an imaginary opponent, or an imaginary student, who he'll make an argument, and then that person asks a question. Paul is kind of voicing the questions that might be going on in people's minds, and then he's answering those questions. Now, Paul's not just grabbing these questions out of thin air. He's not just making up. Here's a question someone might have. At least I don't think he is. By this point in Paul's life, he has been uh, traveling around for 20 years 
from town to town, going into synagogues, and I guarantee you having this exact discussion. He's probably been screamed at in a lot of synagogues over the very things that we just heard him say, and he's probably been questioned a lot with the very questions that he's about to list out for us, including this first one. What is the point of being Jewish? What's the advantage? Why would God call Abraham and make this special people for himself if we're not even that special? And then Paul starts to answer in verses 2 through 4. What's the value, he says, much in every way to begin with. Now, in in the Greek, it says, first of all, actually. But the ESV, they changed that to begin to the phrase to begin with because what's going to happen is Paul's not going to get to second of all or third of all. He only says, first of all, and then he either gets sidetracked or he intentionally leaves that question open. He won't answer the rest of the advantages. He won't talk about the rest of the advantages of being Jewish until chapter 9, verse 4. So it's going to be seven more chapters before he gets to the rest of this. But really what he says is, first of all, uh, he says the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be, may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So he says, listen, there are advantages to being Jewish. And the first one is this, that they have been entrusted with the oracles of God. That means the scriptures. They've been given the Old Covenant, the, the Old Testament, the scriptures for themselves. But that word there, entrusted, is, is an interesting one and I think an important one. Uh, entrusted is something that happens when God or when someone gives you something to take care of for someone else. It's not yours. You've been entrusted to care over this thing so that it can be given on to someone else. Um, here's how one, one uh, scholar, John Stott, says that the advantage that the Jewish people had was an advantage of responsibility, not security. So the advantage was not, hey, you got the law, you're good. When judgment day comes, no worries, you're secure. No, it was an advantage of you have this, the honor of being responsible for the very words of God and showing those off to the rest of the people. Um, so he says they've got this advantage of having the law, and then he, he asks the next question, okay, but Paul, you just told us that a lot of Jewish people aren't even following the law, so it wasn't much of an advantage. Like, if God's going to go back on that now because we weren't keeping it, then, then isn't God being unfaithful? Isn't He holding to these? Uh, isn't He failing to keep His promise? And He says, no, not at all. In fact, He says their lack of faithfulness only highlights God's great faithfulness, that He has stayed true to His Word all the way through, even if they have not. He says it shows off His great justice, um, which leads to another question in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, then what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I'm speaking in a human way, Paul says. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some may slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? Now, the back and forth that Paul's doing might make it easy to get lost. But here's what he's basically saying. When I stand up and tell you 
that when you're bad, God's goodness is still highlighted and you can see His greatness and His glory even more. There's someone who's sitting there listening going, okay, wait a second. If the worse I am, the better God looks. If every time I do bad things, it just shows off God's goodness, then why is He punishing me for it? Isn't He benefiting from this? If He keeps looking good every time, why not? He goes on to say, why don't I just do bad things? That works out for everybody. I can be happy living how I want. God's righteousness looks really good next to my unrighteousness. And in fact, there were some people, Paul says, who were actually saying that this is what Paul was teaching. Paul was teaching, go around, do whatever you want because it shows off how good God is. And and Paul doesn't even think that that deserves an answer. He just goes on and says, people like that, their condemnation is deserved. Like someone who's that wicked, who wants to just lean into their sin and find any way to do it in that way, it's, it's deserved by them. Um, here is uh, his, the last little section here. He's going to string together these verses here um, that, are, that are going to kind of display everyone's sinfulness. Now, just so you know, the question, what is the advantage to being Jewish? I don't know if you've noticed, Paul has not fully answered it yet. And he's not going to yet. He's not going to until we get to next week. To next week we get to one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. And in that one he'll begin to answer this question a little bit more. He's only kind of setting the stage for it a little bit. Um, but now he's going to sum up all of what we've learned in the last two weeks um, using a bunch of scripture verses. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Now catch that. Because there's some people think, why, does, why is Paul so anti-Jewish? Why is he so, is he, some people have accused him of being anti-Semitic. But Paul actually clarifies here, no, I am Jewish. I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm in the same boat as all of you, he says. And so he, he's not against them. He is them. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that, that all, both Jews and Greeks, that's both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin, as it is written. And this is just a series of scriptures from the Old Testament. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Um, So Paul lists off all these things and he uses all these Old Testament verses to hammer his point home, which is this in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. He's saying, I just listed off a bunch of Old Testament verses. Now, he says to the Jewish people, you want to cling to the law to show how you should be declared okay on the final day. But I'm going to use that very law to show how it's actually condemning you. It speaks to you who are under the law. And then he says in verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He says that that, that verse 20 is the crescendo of everything he's been going after. No one will be justified. No one will be declared righteous by observing the Jewish law system, by doing the things that the Jewish law put forth. The most it actually does is just reveal how bad you are. Now, 
there is this question, there's a few, a, a number of questions that Paul has left open that we still need to unpack and he's going to do later. But one of the ones is, what does he actually think? He says in verse 25 that there is value to circumcision as long as somebody obeys the law. He says there's a value to that. And then later on in chapter 3, he's like, so what's the value of this? Is it even valuable? And he makes it sound like it's not. So the question is, what does Paul actually think of religious rituals? Religious rituals that were instituted by God, by the way, to Abraham. Is he against them? Is he for them? What, what does he think of those things? That's what we're going to unpack in the next few minutes when Scott gets up here. For now, we'll take a few minute break for you to stretch your legs or head to the restroom, whatever you need to do. The second half, and I know there are a lot of new people here. So let me, let me just kind of re-explain what we do. We are teaching through the book of Romans, as you already know. We, are, we break it up into two halves whenever we do that. So the first half, which Drew just did, is where someone kind of walks through the text and just kind of talks verse by verse and explains, this is what's happening, this is what's going on in the situation, these are what these words mean, and this is what this text means. And so we, we believe that's important because we always want to start with, what did it mean to the original audience? What was the author's intended meaning? We've got to start there in order to know, like, what does this mean for us? We've got to start with what it meant to them. So that's what Drew just did. He broke that down for us. He helped us understand Paul's flow of logic, Paul's, um, what he's doing and explaining. And then the second half is where we get to, kind of, we get to stand up and say, okay, let's, let's step back from this and let's kind of look at something bigger that's happening and let's, let's see what is, what is God maybe trying to show us. What does this mean to us today? Um, and so that's, that's what I'm doing now. So, um, where we're at in Romans, okay? If, if, if you are kind of following along, this is Romans. This is a, there's 16 chapters. This is kind of how it's broken up, okay? It can, be, it can definitely be broken down even more. But the first 17 verses of chapter 1 is kind of an introduction, from 118 through 320, we just finished, we're finishing tonight, is Paul's kind of giving essentially the bad news. And I'm going to get into that. I'm going to kind of talk through that. I'm going to, I'm going to explain what I think he's doing in, in real simple terms and to summarize this tonight. And then next week we start into this, this part, 321 through the rest of chapter 8, where Paul is going to give an in-depth um, explanation of the implications of what Jesus did, starting with next week. And so that's actually going to take us through the rest of this semester and into the beginning of next semester to, to really kind of delve into this, because there's a lot there, and it's really awesome. And then 9 through 11 is kind of its own thing. 12 through 15 is kind of its own little section. And then, and then 16 is, is really kind of the closing. So, so in, in, this, in this section, um, what Paul's doing... I believe, is, is helping us see something that, is, that all of us know. And so I think this has already been mentioned um, and talked about a little bit, but all of us wake up every day, and all of us recognize, like, okay, things aren't perfect. Like, um, this world is broken, or I'm broken, or there are problems in this world, um, and there are problems in me. 
And so all of us attempt from that point on, from the moment we wake up, we, we go about it in lots of different ways. Sometimes, some of us try to run from it. Some of us try to attack it. Some of, some of us try to just, all right, we're just going to knuckle, white knuckle it and get through it. Some of us take a passive aggr- approach. There's lots of different ways to handle it, but all of us, all of us attempt to do something to, to fix it. And we, and we, and, and honestly, if, if the moment we stop, is, is when really bad things begin to happen um, in us. And so what Paul, I think, is dealing with is he is going after us and going after his audience in really, like, two ways to live. And he's kind of attacking these two ways to live. And, and so these two ways to live that I think Paul attacks um, are, in, in these verses... Are, and I'm putting these in the simplest terms as I can, but I think this will help, help us kind of get a grasp on it. The first way is in verses 1, 18 through, through 130. Um, yeah, through the end of that chapter. So the second half of chapter 1, Paul goes after this first way, which is the irreligious way. Now, I, le- I use that ter- term loosely because when Paul's day, he's dealing with, um, Gentiles or pagans who had lots of idols and, and, and worshipped lots of things and did lots of things that were they might have considered to be religious. But <clears throat> I'm using it in terms of the irreligious approach is basically just replacing God with anything and everything you want. Essentially, you. Like, just chasing after what you want. Just going after the things that you want. Replacing God and being your own Savior. And, and the Bible calls that idolatry. We talked about that, that all of us are guilty of this. All of us, all of us at some level are guilty of what Paul describes in, the, in, those section, in those verses. And He says that all of us um, worship the creation over the Creator. He says that all of us <clears throat> at some point think we're smarter than God. We, think, we take the things that God's given us and we think, you know what, I know how you want me to use those, but here's how I'm going to use them. I know what you intended those to be, but here's what I'm going to do with them. And we think we're smarter than God. All of us, at some point, fail to acknowledge God. All of us, we, we, we tend to take the credit for something, or we want the glory for something, or we do it for our own purposes and not <clears throat> for Him. And again, the Bible describes that as idolatry, and Paul just levels the playing field for us. In fact, I heard a, a, kind of a, a, a different way of thinking about idolatry this past week when um, someone said, <clears throat> that every culture puts in front of us, puts in front of them, objects that bring meaning to their life. That's another way of describing idolatry. It's when, it's when a culture, and every culture has done this from the beginning of time. Okay? You, can, you can go back into Old Testament Bible days, and when a woman says, if I can't have children, I might as well die. That's a, that's a really good indication of what was put in front of them that brought meaning to their life. If you don't have this, you're nothing. Now we don't have. That's not our. That's not our culture today. Um, and we can say, thankfully, um, that's a bad way to think about women. That their only value is is bringing forth children. But for for those societies, that was it. The, the family was it. Children, providing children, bringing children to the. <clears throat> that was their way of being significant and. But for us, it's, it's just other things. 
You know, you think about all the things that our culture puts in front of us and says, if you don't have this, you, you don't, you, you're nothing. And all of us do that. And so for us, it's more of like individual assets and like looks or career or possessions or you name it. <clears throat> and so we've just exchanged, every culture does it. We exchange it for different things, but it's all considered idolatry. This is the, the irreligious way. It's I will do what I want because I know what's best for me. It's also a way of, of, of self-discovery or self-indulgence. And if you've been at college long enough, um, you've seen this played out. Even if you've been here just a few weeks, you've seen at some point you've seen individuals who are just going to live it up, just trying to discover everything, trying to experience everything, experience life and indulge in it all. Just, I want it all. I want to experience it all. That's, that's this first way, this first way of living, irreligious way of living. And Paul says, Paul goes after it and attacks it and says, God's righteous judgment is going to be poured out. On, on un, unrighteous, on the ungodly. And God's going to give those things that God in, inevitably gives us what we want if we constantly say, this is what we want. He says, okay, I'll let you have what you want. And guess what? What, <clears throat> what you want isn't really what you want. <clears throat> but that's the first way. And then in chapter 2, he switches gears. And he kind of starts going after the second way. And you can probably guess what it is. It's the religious way to live. Which is interesting, because Paul was a very religious man. And he goes after this this religious way of living, and he deals with um, self-righteousness and hypocrisy. He deals with religious rituals and what matters most in this text. And this religious way is believing you're good, believing you're saved, whatever, because of what you do. Believing you're good because of what you do. Believing you're, you're set. You're saved because of the things you do. And this religious way is I obey so that God accepts me. I, God accepts me because of my obedience, because of my whatever, because of my, my practices, because of the things I do. Paul goes to great detail to say, and by the way, let me just remind you guys, um, you don't all obey. <laughs> you, you think you do, but you really don't. Um, and, and the law has proven that you, that you don't obey. But there still is this kind of, sometimes a, a, a desire to, yeah, I'm, I'm good because of, because of these things, because of the things I do. This is the way of moral conformity or, or moral performance. Um, this way has uh, external markers um, attached to it that make me good, that make me look good. And, and this, this, is, this is where we start to find ourselves. Okay? So I remember growing up, and Drew and I were talking about this earlier, um, you know, for us growing up, there, there really was a, well, Christians don't watch rated R movies. Christians don't listen to that kind of music. Christians don't, uh, they don't drink alcohol. They don't chew tobacco. They don't smoke. They don't date girls that do all these things. They, you know, they, so, like, these are the things that Christians do and don't do. And this is kind of how you find yourself in, you know, these two camps. And for us, it was, it was you know, there's, there's some of these things that are really attached to it. This church life was, was 
had all these external markers kind of connected to it. And I would imagine a lot of that's true for you. If you grew up in a church that you had these expectations, you, you knew what not to do, you knew what to do, um, you didn't really maybe always understand why, but you just knew kind of what was expected of, a, of you. But this is actually not just a, a Christian thing, not just a Jewish thing. This is a, this is a human thing. Like, um, it's, a, it's a human tendency to, to believe that what you do is actually what makes you better. And I, I, can, I can remember um, someone asking me, um, and asking me how I was doing. And, and my answer was always tied to, if I was doing good, like, how are you and, you and God? They're good. Things are good. Because I would look back at, how often was I in the Word? I was at church, prayed fairly regularly, handling temptation, okay, I'm good. And, and when someone would ask me, how are you doing? I'd say, you know, if it was somebody I was close to, man, not good. I just, I'm not real consistent in the Word. I'm just, I don't pray as often as I should. You know, really struggling with temptation, whatever it is. And, and my understanding of my standing with God was, was, was tied to the things that I was doing or to the things I wasn't doing. And Paul's kind of going after that in this. And he's, and he's describing something that is beyond it. And so, Drew asked this question about, about rituals. Um, my guess is that the idea of a religious ritual just sounds um, impersonal or distant or archaic. Um, not something that you... If someone said, hey, you want to... Go practice some religious rituals together. If some, a friend came to you, hey, let's go practice some religious rituals. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Like you're going to, now I'm washing my hair, I think. I'm doing anything other than that is what I'm doing. Um, that's not, but the, the, the reality is you think through this, the reality is uh, as, as, as Christians, like reading the Bible, coming on Thursday nights, going to church, uh, you know, praying. So these, these are things that, that you do. So how is it that these are bad? Is that what Paul's saying? Is Paul saying that these are bad? That, that these religious practices are bad? Or, or is he not? And so what is he saying? I, I, love, I love this description that this one um, author said. He said, any such ritual only has value if it is accompanied by heartfelt obedience. He says, we're all tempted to substitute the outward form for the inward reality. Think about that. All of us, through these, these things that we do, we're tempted to, um, to substitute outward, the outward form for the inward reality. Outward form for the inward reality. I, this, this, that phrase reminds me of this book I read on parenting about 12 years ago that really kind of changed the way my wife and I think about our kids and and, um, and, and in it, he talked about this very thing. He, he talked about when, whenever we force our, our kids, um, and none of you have them, but force our kids and focus on their behavior and not on their heart, it's like we're, it's like we're trying to pin healthy fruit to a dead tree. So imagine you go to a friend's house and they, 
they invite you into the backyard and they like show you this tree that looks dead and yet it looks dead and yet there's beautiful apples red apples all over it and it's really confusing because there's fruit there's apparent fruit but the tree's dead and the reality is that tree can't sustain that fruit because it's dead and so like th this idea of focusing on these religious things that we do these practices without this heart of obedience is a really big deal and has been part of the story from the very beginning. So Paul goes after him. He attacks these two ways, the irreligious way and the religious way. And what, what's interesting is Jesus does something similar. Uh, but he does it in a, in a way, way better style. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke 15. Luke 15 is probably a familiar story to you. If you've, you've, if you've been in church long or read the Bible much, uh, starting at verse 11, there's probably a heading over this section. So, name out what some of the headings are. What? Nope. Verse 11. It's alright, you're just a couple of verses. Parable of the lost son. Anybody else have a different? <laughs> prodigal son. Okay. So you got prodigal son, parable of a lost son. What's really interesting is, look at the very first line. Look what Jesus said, verse 11. What does he say? How many sons? Two sons. So, it's interesting that we focus on the first one. But Jesus tells a story. I'm going to tell it real quick. We're not going to read through it. I'm going to tell it. If you haven't read this, you should read it. It's really good. But Jesus tells this parable, and he says there's a story. There's, there's two sons, Okay. The younger son comes to the father, and the, and the younger son says to the father, listen, I want my inheritance from you now, so can you give it to me now? Instead of waiting until you die, I just want it now. So the father divides his, his, his estate, he gives his younger son his part, and his son takes off. And this guy goes and he wastes it, and he says, spends it on wild living. And so he goes off and spends it all, finds himself starving and needing a job. He starts working with pigs. He's longing to eat what the pigs are eating. And then he can't even, uh, he can't even have that. And so he remembers that his, his father has servants who live way better than him. And so it says he came to his senses, came to his senses and decided he was going to go back to his father and, and tell his father, listen, just make me a servant. I just want to be a servant in your household, you know. And, and so this was a picture of him um, humbling himself and turning back to his father. And his father sees him off at a distance. His, obviously, his father's looking for him. He runs to him. He greets him. And, and, the, and the opposite thing happens. He expects to be scolded, and instead he was received with love and care, and a robe wrapped around him, a ring put on him. They threw a party for him. They killed a fattened calf. Um, and, and then all of a sudden, they're having this party for him. And then the, the older brother, the older son, he comes into the picture. He hears the commotion. He, he asks his servant what's going on. He tells him, you, you, your brother's back and your dad's throwing a party for him. And, and the older brother refuses to go in. Okay, So he's, staying, he's outside of this party and he's fuming. And the, and the father, 
who really is kind of what the story is about. It's about the Father. Um, God is high, Jesus is highlighting the Father. But he goes out to this, this older brother, and he says, basically, what's wrong? And the brother, the brother says, listen, I've been with you this whole time. I've done everything you've asked me to do. And you throw a party for him? Like you're using, basically, think of all the money that it costs to throw this party is whose? It's the older brother's. You're wasting my money on that wicked son. He got his part, and now you're using mine for him? And he refused to go in. And, and the story ends with the, with the younger son in the party, fully accepted, back into the family. And it ends with the older brother, with the father pleading to the older brother, listen, all you have me. You've had me this whole time. And all that I have is yours. But we had to do this because your brother, who is dead, is now alive. So, so let me just explain kind of what's happening here. Both sons wanted the same thing from their father. Um, they, they just employed different strategies to get it. The first son decides to take it, and he asked for it, and he went and spent it. The older son decided to wait his time to be the good son, to do all the right things. He thought, I'm going to get more this way. I'll just stay here, bite my time, I'll get it all. Um, the younger son, both rejected their father. The younger son rejected him early, but, but repented, turned, turned back, humbled himself and turned back and went back to the father. The older son obeyed until it didn't go his way, until he didn't get what he wanted, until it cost him part of his estate and he, he, wouldn't, receive the younger, he wouldn't receive the younger son back. The younger son rejected his father and then was willing to be a servant in his house. The older son had his father the whole time, but it wasn't enough. He wanted more. And so the story ends with the younger brother um, having a changed heart and being received as a, new, as a true son, and the older brother having a hard heart rejecting the father's invitation to be, to be in. So you have this this really contrasting story. It's interesting that, that Paul is kind of going after this group, this irreligious group, this irreligious way of living, and then he goes after this religious way of living, and he kind of hints at, throughout this whole section, like there, there's Gentiles, right? Um, uncircumcision plus obedience equals circumcision. Like there's, there's people that aren't circumcised that are going to be in because of their obedience, because of their heart of obedience. God cares about the heart. Um, one more place, last place to turn, and we're going to end on this. But this has always been the story. Turn to Deuteronomy 10. I want to show you, this is just a few chapters after God gives the law in Deuteronomy 5. I want to give you, like, help you see, this is the heart of God all the way through, that God... God has always cared about the heart. He's always cared about the heart. Deuteronomy 10, starting at verse 12. He says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all His ways, to love Him and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul? 
Keep the Lord's commandments and statutes I am giving you today and for your own good. The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord had His heart set on your fathers and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and no bribe, taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. You also are to love the resident alien. Since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt, you are to fear the Lord your God and worship Him. Remain faithful to Him and take oaths in His name. He is your praise and He is your God who has done for you these great and awe-inspiring works your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 people in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. So God is, um, has always been about the heart. He's always been about um, an obedient heart, a heart of obedience. And so rituals and practices aren't bad. They aren't, they aren't bad things. They're things actually given to us to express a heart of obedience to God. But done without that, Paul's saying, they don't matter. And it's not about doing things perfectly. It's not about having perfect motives it's about a heart of obedience. But what's crazy is Paul's saying it like no one has this. Like no one can have this heart of obedience. And that something has to happen outside of us for us to be able to have it. If only there was a way to live that revealed the righteousness of God. If only there was a way to live that dealt with idolatry, that dealt with self-righteousness, that shows, showed God's impartiality. If only there was a way to live that fulfilled the law, that proved God's faithfulness to His covenant people and His promise to bless all the nations. And if only there was a way that wasn't based on our ability to obey, but based on God's ability to save and to sanctify. And that way is Jesus. And that way we will get into next week. So I hope you come back. Let me pray. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. Help us to to recognize um, how we're living in light of You and in light of Your Gospel. I pray, God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know You, that doesn't know what this third way to live is about, Um, I pray, God, that they would ask someone here tonight, that they would come and talk to us, to me, to whoever. And, um, God, I pray that you would use our time tonight for your purposes and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thanks for being here. Um, If you are new, if, if, if you want a couple amazing cookies, like the best cookies in Stillwater, um, I'm not kidding you, you need to come over here and see Kelsey and fill out a little card. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to figure out how to connect you. And other than that, thanks for being here and hope you come back next week.